And so what one thing that you're seeing in Lebanon and in Syria very much is the the British and the French, the first thing they did when they would enter a territory is they would look for the minority group and they would put the minority group in power. Because what happened then is that the minority group could never rule without the colonial power support. They would always be unpopular and they knew that the moment they were no longer in power, they'd just get massacred. In his book, Proof of Life, author Daniel Levin dives into the Syrian shadows, into an industry of war where everything is for sale, arms, drugs, even people. In this thriller memoir, Daniel draws in his experience as a lawyer turned armed conflict negotiator, who for the past 20 years has worked with governments and development institutions worldwide. After an unusually international upbringing, he served in the Israeli Special Forces and now uses his extensive Middle Eastern contacts for diplomatic and mediation efforts as well. I showed up for the story of a hostage negotiation in Syria and stayed for the wide-ranging discussion of the importance of historical context in any conflict resolution and the potential institutional reforms that have to take that into consideration. We also talked about Afghanistan, Lebanon, Israel, and TV shows, and Daniel Levin's uncanny sense of smell. Begins transmission now. I was in the first Gulf War, too. Oh, were you? In the Israeli army, yeah. Most of it in a, in a helicopter in the air. Oh, the Israeli army. But weren't you guys like over on the... I was in Iraq. I was in Syria. Yeah, we dropped everywhere. You were special forces, right? Yeah, those were memories. You know, it took me about a year after the war ended not to shudder whenever I heard a motorcycle revving up in Tel Aviv. It was really weird because the sirens, both in the army and at home, the, the war sirens every time a scud would get fired, yeah. got so impregnated in my mind. It took me a long time. It was really weird. Every time those idiots would like race motorcycles near my home, I'd just think, oh, here goes the next alarm. Take out the mask, do the whole thing. The motorcycle was kind of a trigger? Why was that? The sound of a motorcycle revving up. I lived in a street that was going uphill, and the sound of that revving up sounded exactly like the scud alarm started. The, like the first two or three seconds sounded exactly like it. Oh, like you had an old-fashioned Claxton alarm or something yeah, going yeah. off. Like I was the dog that would start to foam, basically. That was an interesting time. I mean, they kept trying to pull you guys into the war, right? Yeah, it took a lot of restraint. But I mean, yeah, we, for us, it was, I mean, for me, it was like active war. We were really deployed. But obviously, as a as a, Nash, as a country, Israel held back, of course. Yeah. I think that was the toughest job for the U.S. is keeping Israel out of the whole thing. You know, in your book, uh, I really enjoyed it, by the way. It's um, somebody Thank said that you. it's uh, a combination of a thriller wrapped in a memoir, which I thought was interesting. But it also had a, a sort of a, a sort of noir bit to it. And also there was kind of this you know, this sensual side of, of the experience that I don't not really used to uh, kind of experiencing in that genre. So I wouldn't say it's really a, like a Jason Bourne novel. It's more like it's more like a Jason Bourdain yeah, <laughs> that's that's kind of what that's I'm, well yeah. kind of what I'm going to go with right now because I thought, oh my god, all the way down to the food, right? Those dates are delicious dipped in honey. Yeah. I never thought, I never thought of you know there was something interesting about it, and I said noir because a lot of noir was sort of post-war, and you had detectives and you know investigators who um, were kind of almost almost it seemed like they were they were consciously protecting themselves from getting too pulled into the story. And, uh, but there was a kind of equanimity in, in your voice that allowed you to, you know, allowed you to observe things, what was going on. I think that had something to do with your research later. It also had a, like a quality that enabled you to come up with a lot of commentary and, and remember a lot of it. So I, I'm just, I'm just wondering, was, was that voice that you heard, that you read after you'd written it, was it, was it a surprise that it seemed like you or that it seemed like someone else? 
Uh, you know, the answer is it's going to come from, I may disappoint you, but uh, I think that the best way I can answer it is that I recognize the voice because it sounds like the voice I write my diaries in. I've been writing diaries my whole life. And uh, I didn't really intend to, uh, throughout these 20 days, I never thought I'd be writing the story. In fact, I wrote my last book during this experience, kind of as a matter of therapy. So whenever I had a free moment, I was writing, I was another, the last book I wrote, Nothing But a Circus, was about sort of life in and around power and politics. And I wrote that. I never expected to write the story. And had I not made the promise to the two girls at the end, I probably wouldn't have written it. And then there's a different angle. But but so the, the book is more, the recordings I did, because I do that as a matter of safety protocol whenever I can and transcribe my recordings. But I really do, I, I enter diary entries 340 days out of 365 a year. And I've been doing it since I'm 12 years old. So the voice, that none, that didn't really change that much, whether it's an observation on what I'm eating or who, oh, you know, how people smell or what watches they're wearing or, or a dialogue to, to the extent I can remember is something I've been doing really most of my life. So that's, for me, very recognizable, actually. Mm-hmm. But the hardest part for me was how do I write it in a way that's neither self-servingly self-effacing nor self-aggrandizing, obviously. So that, and then it becomes inauthentic at some point. And that was more of a struggle. But the, when I was rendering what I wrote down in diaries in terms of dialogues or observations, that came very naturally and seems authentic. The harder part was anything that's reflective and, and uh, you know, sometimes the dialogue seems really self-serving for whatever reason, either because you're, you're self-effacing in a way that you hope your audience will appreciate or because you seem like a hero that you're really not. So that, you know, that's the sort of Jason Bourdain dilemma, I guess, those two poles. It was quite a trip. I mean, did you get to know through writing this, did you get to know who Paul Blocker, I know that's probably a pseudonym, but did you get to know sort of who he was or, and this is movie, the transporter you know, where they always tell him not to don't ask what you're transporting. Right. You know what I mean? I mean, do you find that, uh, do you find that to be a challenge um, or do you find it actually helps with, with your case? I, I mean, I think it helps generally in the case of hostages and to know as much as you can of the person you're looking for. What I do try to avoid and it wasn't really possible entirely is I tried to have very little contact with the families. So I try to get the information I can. It's very hard to deal with families of missing people, you know, whether it's in a military context, obviously it's really painful, but certainly in in this kind of a context, people have turned to governments or intelligence agencies and either didn't get very far or got in a way that they weren't really happy with. And then you're trying to navigate that and you're navigating angry or sad or people and just living in agony kind of thing. And it really paralyzes you. So that's the part I tried to minimize, but I did try to find as much as I could. There was a time early in this where I really thought he was related to the Captagon trade. Uh, it, it was some weird coincidences, information I'd received, some of which I hinted at at the books, others I didn't include that I thought it's possible this guy somehow got tied up in it, maybe cluelessly, maybe not. And I, and I wouldn't have wanted to touch it then. Uh, I just feel like that, you know, there's also limited resources, my own resources too, that I wasn't going to get involved with someone just because someone's a drug courier who got screwed. Right. Um, and then it, it wasn't the case. He was really much more of a this really bizarre, clueless adventurer who thought, hey, why not track those trails of people I knew and not realizing you're entering into this medieval war zone. And uh, but but I, I definitely try to learn as much as I can of the, of the person I'm looking for. Jump, jump ahead. I want to talk to you about the, the kind of stages that you go through. I thought it was fascinating that it's six to eight weeks. People stop wanting to know what's happening, but they, they settle just for, okay, no, no bad news is good. I just wanted to ask you maybe on a, on a, like a larger calendar, what is, what, what are some of the other stages that, 
you know, families go through? And what are some of the stages that you go through as an investigator as well? I try really as much as I can. The less emotionally invested I am, the better. I try really to go a foot again, you know, in front of another foot. In, there's there's so many twists and turns. There's no way you can anticipate. You have no idea when you start this stuff out who's going to be helpful to you, who not. You have no idea whether the person's alive or not, uh, and whether you'll get proof of life or even understand who held him. And so, the, all these grandiose kinds of visions of how you're going to go about it, and that's really Jason Bourne stuff. You know, that's that's not really very different from the idea that you will parachute in behind enemy lines and shoot 3,000 prison guards and escape with a guy. That's, you know, that's, that's silly stuff. And none of it really works that way. You're constantly disadvantaged and, and interacting with people who don't need to help you at all. So I really just get to try to do this in concentric circles and get it one step at the other. And, and the moment I feel that I can outthink this and plan like chess, you know, all those lovely metaphors that we like, 30, 40 moves ahead, I fall flat on my face. So I try to stay within myself, but I do notice these emotional changes. Also, families are fed a whole lot of nonsense in the sense, you know, stuff like, God, you know, if you don't, if you don't find the person within the first six hours, their chances drop by 90, all that kind of stuff that you see from movies. It's, it's really right. silly. It's just not true. It depends very much. And it's very different in Syria, whether if the regime has you or militia has you, and it's different if it's a secular or religious militia, it's a completely different ballgame. Um, for uh, millions of reasons. And so I try, I, I've noticed with them that there's this initial euphoria because they talk to important people, whether it's in government and, you know, you have a secretary of state who comes out and says, you know, we're not going to leave a stone unturned, blah, blah, blah. So you have that initial euphoria that lasts a few days, sometimes a few weeks, and then there's a total crash where, they, where families realize, okay, that's hot air. And then they have to try and figure it out and they realize how hard that is. And then they make the first mistakes. So there's the euphoria as you're making the mistake, thinking you're helping. For example, you start an, a media campaign. All right. And only then, and then, and then what happens? Then you have that new cycle. Like three weeks later, you realize, wow, not only wasn't I able to get closer, I just increased the head, the head value on this person. In other words, whoever has him thinks now he's worth a lot more than he actually is. I just made it that much harder, right? Not just in a ransom context, also in terms of trading favors or whatever someone would want in return. So you have all these cycles where you always have this euphoria and then it tanks, right? You always have that, that, that hockey curve going up and then the cliff falling. And, and that, you know, after three or four of those cycles, so people are in captivity six months or, or beyond, three or four of those cycles usually leave the family as flatliners. Like they, they say, like, don't even call me, not, not even not to tell me there's no bad news. Like it has to be something extraordinary. Like he's either dead or you have him. Otherwise, don't bother me. You often get to that place six months in. But, and that's not because it's a progression, because you have these monthly or three-weekly progressions and then these crashes. And it's really hard to go through that with a family because you really can anticipate. And, and at the core of it is that humans are just really shitty prognosticators. We're really bad at, at understanding our own future behavior, let alone evaluating other people's. So, so it, this is such a messy process. And what in behavioral psychology you call noisy, right? There's all this useless variability and it's not even biased. It's just useless variability. We don't, humans don't make consistent decisions in the same context. A judge doesn't decide the case on a Monday morning the way he would on a Thursday afternoon or if his team won a football game on Sunday or lost a football game. So all these factors influence decisions shouldn't happen. The same thing happens here. And so you have all these variables, that these variabilities that you can't explain to the family. So so these are really messy cycles, but what you do see is more or less in a monthly rhythm, 
with missing people, this, this sort of slight hope, thinking you're doing something, you can help yourself, and then this crash. And then after about half a year, it just goes flat. That's interesting. I mean, I guess there's like an, on the other side, there are the, the kidnappers, right? I mean, there's there's their cycle. They obviously capture someone. They have they have their own high hopes. And also, I you know, I'll be talking about this stuff, and I know you've had some horrific experiences. So I hope you don't. I hope uh, I don't I hope I don't make light of it at all. You know, because um, you know some of the people you've been in contact with, some of the people we've read about. You know, there's some really kind of extreme circumstances and consequences. But I, d- I would say that uh, I did talk to a mediator who wasn't a crisis mediator or a war zone mediator, but he, he mentioned something kind of flippantly, like he uses it a lot, which is like he just, well, the negotiation wasn't ripe. And um, I was just wondering if there is a moment where in a negotiation like that, a kidnapping negotiation, where, where it is ripe for negotiation, what, what are the conditions for that possibly? You could say that that's a correct statement. You could also easily say that's a really stupid statement. Uh, it's there's certainly it can be there's always a moment where the negotiation is not right, but that's because of certain factors that are incorrect, right? Like the the asking price is not right, or it might not a release date might not be right. There's always a situation that's ripe for negotiation. The mistake you can make is discuss certain terms that aren't yet ready to be discussed. But for example, in any negotiation, any kind of situation, trying to maintain a contact with the kidnappers. Uh, is always right. Uh, it may just be that you're creating a relationship or you're building up a network of people who have relationships with them who have favors and counterfavors that you can try to trade. So in, in, in that sense, for me, it's always right from the, ver- from the very first moment. You just have to be careful not to either miss the moment or ask it too early about the terms of a release. Because the one thing you don't want to do is shoot your wad and you sort of try the negotiation when you're going to get a demand that you can't fulfill. That sets you back sometimes irrevocably. So in that sense, that's the ripeness I think you have to be really careful of. But that's really just avoiding one of different kinds of mistakes. You obviously it's kind of like any lawyer, you don't ask an answer. You don't ask a question if you don't already know the answer, right? Any any trial lawyer. It's the same thing here. You certainly don't ask a kidnapper what his price is if you don't know his answer in advance and you know that you're going to be able to satisfy it in some form, either yourself or through someone else. So that's the ripe that's the only kind of ripeness that I think is relevant to me. Beyond that, Trying to maintain contact, become friendly with the group that's holding him or the group that has a relationship with, with that group. Uh, that's right from day one, as far as I'm concerned. And my first experience like about kidnapping when I was a kid was the Patty Hearst kidnapping. Yeah. And I still remember seeing the picture of her with a machine gun with a, I don't know, if it was a Kalashnikov or something. You're thinking, what is going on here? I mean, of course, Stockholm Syndrome and so forth. Have you ever run across that? In your in uh, any of your cases, yeah, I mean, you know, it's uh, I remember uh, as a kid, and my dad was Israeli ambassador in Kenya when I, in the sixties, and I was a little kid, and so he maintained really close contacts with rulers in Southeast in Southeast in uh, East Africa, sorry. And uh, when Entebbe happened, the kidnapping of the of the airplane with a lot of Israeli passengers on board, and they ended up in in Uganda under the Amin's protection. I remember kind of finding something almost romantic about the Red Army fraction uh, and the you know the the German left wing terrorists that held it. Just like I thought it was kind of cool the way the Red Brigades and others had kidnapped Aldo Moro and Hans Martin Schleyer in the seventies at the time. And uh, my dad kind of disabused me of all that right away and saying, you know, I'm romanticizing something that's actually really quite ugly. And so I got that out of my system. But what he also at the time taught me, which especially in the European kidnappers like Aldemo and Schleyer in particular in Germany. And that was an early childhood memory of mine was, I remember when his picture, the kidnapping was posted on TV with a ransom payment. And my dad immediately 
reacted by saying that they're not interested in any ransom. They're really just interested in executing him. Oh, wow. Uh, for, and then he was executed later. So so to me, it was that kind of thing. So he, he disabused me very quickly of any kind of romantic notion that you should figure out some sympathy for the kidnappers that way. So it's funny, we have different early childhood memories when it comes to these high profile cases. Just in your experience in the past, I guess, maybe 10 or 15 years, how, how have how have they developed or how have they changed uh, their, their methods? I think, uh, first of all, everything related to, and this is true for drug trade, as it is for kidnapping, they've become extremely sophisticated on the financial side. So for example, today's, uh, whether it's in Islamist groups in Syria or, or criminal gangs or the regime itself have become extremely uh, adept at using cryptocurrencies, for example. You know, so the ability and the, in the past, they were very good about trust structures and hiding beneficial owners and figuring out how to interact with banks with, so that cash amounts can be put into a bank system and then no longer be traceable once they're in the SWIFT system. So there's always that, the kind of a step ahead of law enforcement, multiple steps ahead of law enforcement there. And I feel that now in Syria, you see even the, the interface with technology in, for, in terms of GPS tracking, using devices, VPNs, satellite uh, technology that makes them really untraceable has been, they're really very sophisticated. In terms of what you mentioned earlier, I found that the Islamist groups uh, with their very public executions of the, uh, you know, like James Foley in 2014, which is when my book takes place actually, but James Foley and Stephen Sotloff and others, these uh, really gruesome executions of the Jordanian pilot who was burnt alive in a cage by ISIS. And those were used as recruitment videos. And that, that was really the whole point right. of that. That was never intended to be any kind of negotiated release for anything in return. You release some of our prisoners. Never intended. It was really always intended to be this grisly recruiting. Intended mainly, mainly for disaffected North African immigrants in London and in Paris. That was their core market. And a little bit in Belgium, too, but mainly Paris and London. And uh, and so there's very little you can do there. It's really just a race against the time whether you can locate them. But the, a lot of them were held in, in northeast Syria and Iraq and places like that. So pretty impenetrable, including for American special forces that tried to, to enter in 2014 and couldn't. And so that's a bit of a game changer because there's very, very little to negotiate. There's just very little room for any kind of communication. The whole point of the whole thing was an execution and you usually run out of time very quickly before you can establish contact. But in terms of their sophistication, even there from the production value of these YouTube clips to the way they are being funded to the way they understand the fungibility of certain commodities so they become untraceable is really quite sophisticated and, and including even the way their funds are being invested. So you find yourself in this weird interface between ISIS groups and, and their various uh, militias using any kind of blockchain technology, right? That's the cryptocurrency. It's not just, not just Bitcoin, but all of them. Right. Uh, and Tesla thinking that that's a good way to pay for a car. So you find this bizarre interface of high tech and the most viable companies in the, wor in the world with uh, these terror groups that have completely mastered that. And that's where law enforcement is generations behind these types of groups. They're really sophisticated. It yeah, wasn't there a recent, wasn't there some, there's some sort of recent bust of like a, an underground international criminal network because they use like a fake dark web communication system. Yeah. So I wanted to talk a little bit, we touched on it a little bit about uh, your, your, your background. Um, yeah. I, I know you were, you were an, you were an attorney. Um, 
there's Switzerland is involved in there somewhere. I'm not really sure. And uh, you were born in Israel. Could you maybe just give me a quick rundown of tell me what you can about yourself, like where you grew up? And Yeah, I mean, it's, it's messy. I, I was born in Israel when I was in 63, some 59 years or 58 years old. I mean, my dad uh, was sort of the wartime founding generation of Israel, was uh, a veteran of the War of Independence, was with this sort of elite pre-army unit called the Palmach, was heavily injured, lost most of his left side, left arm, a shrapnel. He was one of those people who beeped at every airport security right. check because he had so much shrapnel in his body his whole life. And um, was very close with Ben-Gurion and Dayan and, and that generation and was posted in 66 to Kenya to set up Israeli relationships in East Africa just before the Six-Day War, a, a year before that, and then obviously before the oil crisis in 73, where relations with African leaders were really good. My dad knew some of these Kenyatta and Kuma, all those guys from the 50s still when oh, really? they were fighting for fighting for independence. So they shared their experiences. He was fighting for independence, not only against the Arab countries, but also against the British because of the British mandate at the time. So right. um, I'm very close terms with them, posted there. Uh, I was three and uh, ended up, you know, we spoke Hebrew and English at home. And then I spoke Swahili, Kikuyu, I sort of adjusted to that culture. My sister was born there, ended up being called Malaika, Swahili name. In 67, the Six-Day War, he, he believed this would be a good time for Israel to enter into negotiation with the Arab countries for a two-state solution. And communicated that to everyone, to Golda, to Dayan, to others, and uh, basically was outvoted. And in part because of the Khartoum resolution, the time that condemned Israel, all the Arab countries. And so we returned to Israel in 69 and he was pretty disgusted and left politics. And my mom was from the Italian part of Switzerland. So we, they decided to take a little sabbatical and left politics and moved to Switzerland. And they got stuck there. My dad passed away three years ago. My mom still lives there. And uh, so I ended up going to school there in elementary school, high school, uh, left after high school, came to the States in, in 80, 81 and lived here for a year and just did a whole lot of music, martial arts, that kind of stuff, and ran out of money, went back to Switzerland, went to law school, and had to do the Swiss Army because by then I'd also become Swiss. Oh, right. Yeah, did the Swiss Army then. And and then after law school, had went to Israel to work on a, on a PhD. And But because I was Israeli, Israeli-born, I went to the Israeli Army and, and did my years there. And so that's – and that was right. And I went back in 88, so that's how I got I – got, you know, stuck in the Gulf War at the time, the first. Right. And spent four years there and then got a scholarship to come to the U.S. in 92 and, and have more or less lived here ever since. Worked as a right. lawyer initially, then started my own firm in the mid-90s, started to do a lot of development work a little initially in Africa and then the Middle East and other countries, mainly resetting up economies and political systems. And that, that led me more to the work that I do today running this European Foundation. We had developed a form of e-government, a way to, in, in the mid-90s, and we use it as a mediation in, in conflict. So, for example, we got very involved in the in the civil war in Angola in the mid to late 90s, where we ended up mediating between the government and which was supported by initially Soviet Union and uh, and Cuba uh, versus Savimbi, the rebels in the Bush, who were supported by the CIA and apartheid South Africa. And we ended up mediating between the sides and creating a sort of a joint coalition and new economy where they could both sides could participate. And that was the beginning of our mediation work. And we did that kind of diplomacy in part as part of rebuilding those countries economically, politically. And that's that's really pretty much the work I still do today. And that leads us more and more into war zones and 
just because of my own Middle Eastern background and and you know speaking the languages, it, it helped me get more and more involved to work now in, in Libya and Yemen and several countries in, in the Middle East. And so that's in a nutshell the background. That's a big nutshell. It always you know, I, I hear myself say this and it sounds always more glorious than it is. And most of it is just running out of options and looking for the next thing to do and then eventually look back and say, Oh yeah, there's some kind of a trajectory there, but it's certainly not visible when you're starting out. I can tell you that. Yeah, we can always kind of look back and think that we had some big crystal ball 3D chess way of, of solving our life, but really we're just going step by step, scene scene to scene, I guess, in some yeah, instances. Yeah. Absolutely. Afghanistan, I just want to hear your thoughts on the situation and, um, you know, the Americans kind of pulling out and what problems that could cause. Because you talked about Syria and understanding that area before you went in there. And of course, there's, there's Shia, there's Alawi, there's, you know, the North Koreans are bringing things in, the Russians have an interest, the Hezbollah is involved, the Iranians, and, you know, the U.S. was was tinkering around in there for a little while. But, and you describe how this kind of war, you talk about in your book, how this war economy is, is sort of sustaining all this un- unrest. Do you see a similar situation in um, Afghanistan? And who would some of the players be that we might not expect? It's really hard to answer that question quickly, because yeah. the only intelligent way to discuss that from from me is in a much larger context. I think you have to right. go back to 1979, where the two major events that happened was the Iranian Revolution and the attack on the Grand Mosque in Mecca. And which completely redrew the Middle East and the Arab world and the Islamic world, too. And so you can't really understand, for example, Afghanistan, if you don't understand Pakistan, which before then was a much more secular country, which completely flipped because of Pakistan's fate is so closely tied to what's going on in Afghanistan. I think we completely, as a country, U.S. now, misplayed the relationship with Pakistan over the last 20 years. And, and so many levels, I don't even want to get started. It's not just do we yeah. like Bhutto, don't we like Bhutto? That's not the point. Um, we absolutely failed to, for the investments in terms of return on investment, failed to accomplish institutional ties that we needed both government to government, military to military, and intelligence to intelligence that we would have needed. Notwithstanding all the Cy Hirsch rumors on how bin Laden actually got caught and whether there was a cooperation with the ISI and Let's leave all that for the side. Just in terms of uh, looking at what we've accomplished, if you look at Afghanistan now, if you just look at the last 20 years, and it, without even being silly or, or polemic about the, you know, the return on investment for the money, the idea that you'd go there uh, to help build an army and teach how to fight in a country like Afghanistan is obviously absurd, right? And I don't really know. That's the Vietnam analogy to me. That's the Yemen analogy of Nasser in the 50s or had to learn that. I mean, every country that went into Yemen from Egypt to Saudi Arabia to United Arab Emirates to everyone, everyone learned that the hard way. You have, a, you know, every eight-year-old Yemeni boy is walking around with AK-47. You really don't need to teach him how to fight. There's other things you might want to be able to help provide, but it's certainly not how to run a war. Uh, and so, and I feel the same way about Afghanistan. The The biggest failure to me was to make a pacifying Afghanistan conditional upon Pakistani involvement and support because uh, now Pakistan gets to gloat, which is really dangerous. It also, it's very hard to answer your question without even understanding the missed opportunity. For example, uh, Qasem Soleimani, the the head of the Quds Force, whom I met several times, I mentioned in a footnote in my book, um, was a sworn enemy of the Taliban and a sworn enemy of ISIS, right? Sworn al-Qaeda, meaning ISIS early on and al-Qaeda later. 
for a number of reasons that were threatening to Iranian uh, aspirations. Uh, he was a natural ally, which he actually was around 2003 when he was big buddies with David Petraeus, as an example, right? So the missed opportunities of trying to figure out where the alliances really are and how to rebuild those countries based on those alliances and take advantage of that also, for example, to establish some kind of a productive relationship with Iran so that you can control the proliferation. Those are all the real stories. So that's the missed opportunity in Afghanistan that for 20 years and that investment and the, and the blood and, and, and so on, that we haven't established meaningful institutions and ties with those institutions, even just rethinking their political system, the idea that you can copy any kind of Western, and I don't mean just liberal democracy, any kind of um, rule of law structure that we're accustomed to with the you know three arms of government, separation of powers, bi-chamber parliaments, all that stuff that makes absolutely no sense in a country as large as Afghanistan, as tribal, as rural, as nomadic in some places, just really makes no sense. So it required the humility to actually go there and try integrate them in those solutions, including integrating the Taliban. And there were efforts to do that. But we really, uh, as a superpower, even more so since the Cold War, I know you sort of you like Cold War yeah. espionage, where we also had a much higher level of human intelligence quality. Uh, since the end of the Cold War, thinking through the post-war, the day after and the day after the day after scenarios is something that the U.S. perhaps has just gotten big enough to be able to afford to fail at. You know, that's how I feel about Afghanistan. It's still, despite this complete uh, mess, and I'm really not focused on whether we went out too fast or not too fast. I don't think it would have made any difference if we had taken half a year to get out. I, I really don't believe that. I think that's all, these are straw man arguments done for whatever reasons. I'm not saying Biden communicated it perfectly. I don't think the intelligence was perfect on that. I just don't think that's the meaningful issue to discuss. I really do right. believe you're looking back and saying, well, what actually is the plan? Because even though you and I both agree we can't plan everything ahead, you certainly don't go into a country like Afghanistan if you can't map out multiple scenarios and how they're going to play out for you. So the, the failure to develop this, and again, the same idea, it's like we're talking about Trujillo in the Dominican Republic decades ago. It's kind of like, well, he may be a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch, kind of those famous words, right? Right. So it's, it's the same thing here. It's like, well, we don't like Ghani, but you know, he may be corrupt, but at least he's with us. It's the same nonsense that led to the Shah's downfall where we couldn't recognize the Iranian revolution coming, even though it was a tsunami that anyone on the ground could have recognized coming months and months ahead of time, right? So yeah. same thing with the Arab Spring, 2011. I mean, you had to be blind not to understand, for example, in Egypt, that you'd have a wave sweeping the Brotherhood to power. And it's not just because the Brotherhood was so supported in this whole population. It's just that they were by far the best organized group. And the one lesson they learned from the fall of Mosi is they're not going to make that mistake the next time and leave a Trojan horse like Sisi within their government structure. They're not going to repeat that mistake. It's going to get much, much uglier when 95 million starving, angry Egyptians go to take to the streets. So for me, it's this inability to anticipate that when anyone on the ground would have seen that coming. The models we're trying to work with, with the people on the ground in Kabul, first of all, just in Kabul and not in the provinces on a political level, which mistake number one, were models that we knew in the U.S. And I'm not trying to be polemic about the collapse of American political system. It's just that no country should really be exporting its political system because it's just a different context. Afghanistan's Pakistan can't export it to Afghanistan's completely different structures. And so that's, to me, 
the real screw up. I, I've focusing on, you know, on, on an explosion at the airport and whether you have a special ISIS group and now they, are they going to be aligned with the Taliban or not? And how do the Iranians feel about them or not? And is the enemy of my enemy actually my friend? That, that's kind of kindergarten football, right? Where I sort of, there's one ball and all the kids are running to the ball rather than spreading out and everyone has their own function to play. This is to me, you know, just kindergarten football and diplomacy. I, I think that's super unproductive. Most of the discussion here and that is, is to me utter garbage. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for, uh, for answer. For Sorry. <laughs> taking a, taking a stab at answering that more question. More or less than you bargained for. Sorry about that. You're like, that you're like the ideal podcast guest. You know what I mean? You just sort of wind it up and, uh, you know, and then you, let him rant. <laughs> you talk about interesting things and they, they make sense. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to, I was joke. I was going to joke around and ask you to talk to my mother. She won't let me leave. <laughs> I just was in Zurich visiting my mom, so yeah, I, I understand. Maybe the two of them should just talk. That's the easiest solution. Yeah, it's a much more tender negotiation. Right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But uh, would, but would very, you... very not dissimilar to kidnapping, nonetheless, right? Yeah, definitely. One thing I noticed is uh, my mother moved to a different house, and she has some things that laying around, and I've kind of been going through them. And uh, she had a bunch of books that she used to read to me when I was a kid. Rather like this big, you know, Alexander's Terrible mm-hmm. Day, stuff like that. So I started looking through them. And what's fascinating about it was that I didn't really remember the plot of these of these books, but I could remember certain things in the illustrations and what I thought they smelled like, what mm-hmm. I thought they felt. That's what was it was shocking. I thought, my God, I've I'm reading a book, but I'm kind of creating this uh you know, I'm creating this sensory experience as a kid while I was reading it. It's funny you say that because don't know when where my was, question goes, but yeah, no, no, it's funny because I just now I went to uh, in my mom's house. I went to the basement to take some of my dad's old diaries from even from the sixties. He wrote in this tiny, tiny handwriting in Hebrew, and bring them home to me here so I could read some of them. And oh, yeah. they, and well, fascinating. When I opened it, I smelt exactly what it smelled like in his office the whole time. It's that same smell that the paper had just been infused in. So it's funny you say that. You know, these are sensations, the sensory overloads that I hadn't had in many, many years. Yeah, it's funny people don't really talk about smells that much. So, I mean, it really jumped out of your book. Yeah, sometimes I know, like before an audition, if I still smell a little, a little sweet after I've showered, I'm like, oh, dude, you're not really that well prepared, are you? <laughs> you know, right. um, I could always, I could sense That's my own wrong. like uh, yeah. anxiety or nervousness, but um, I never thought of like smelling it on on other people. I just remember as a kid that certain families had a, a general smell. Did you did you notice that? Like people from a certain household had different yeah. smells. I mean, it could have something to do with the soap they used or something like that. But I've already had a pretty sensitive nose, but I haven't really put it to work like I think you've done with yours. Yeah, for me, I didn't realize it for many, many years. It came much later through martial arts and then these healing arts where you start to realize that people in a in a unhar- in a unharmonized condition, anxious or fearful or, or sad or angry, you know, emit a certain smell. And once you understand that, you can't ever unsmell these things anymore on yourself and on <laughs> others. I mean, even just, uh, you know, my kids before exams or if they're really sad, they, you know, you, you feel it really powerfully because you're physically very close to them. Uh, but it, it was something from my childhood. It took me a long time to put it together. I just thought I thought it had more to do with not being clean. I didn't really get it quite when I was little. Uh, and only later on did I put it together. And, and so, and, and it's, it's really interesting in the context of bullies in particular, because what you're really smelling is that fearfulness, right? So yeah. it's, it's really interesting, but it took a lot, you know, years and years of getting closer to healing arts and understanding 
just like you can do body readings and understand from the way people tilt across their legs, whether they're hot or cold, just because they're harmonizing it through touch. Uh, or, you know, you see it with, with, for example, very often identical twins, especially if their preemies are born where they stick each other's thumbs in the other person's mouth because you're harmonizing uh, what we call first depth through a thumb, which is your stomach and spleen energy, which in a disharmonized state also emits a certain smell, which is, you know, that, that indicates anxiety. So that you start to put all these things together. It took me, you know, only in the last 20 years that I started to understand some of these contexts and how they worked. And it's, it was, it was interesting. And I thought in the context of the book, because through also just sometimes these sleep deprived, heightened sensation moments where your sense of smell even gets more accentuated than it would otherwise be. So it really felt like this overload. You experience noise much louder and smell much stronger and darkness much darker and, and brightness much brighter. So uh, it, it was for me something nice to put in the context. Is there also why you live 25 miles north of New York City and not in New York City? Yeah. Yeah. For me, it's really a, a sensory overload. We lived in New York until our second, uh, until basically August, just before 9-11, August 2001. And uh, when our son was born and, uh, and I just couldn't take the, the noise and the intensity anymore. It was too much for me. Just this inability. I didn't mind it for a while, but I could never escape it anymore. And that the color was always the same. They never really saw stars in the sky, right? There was, it was always that one state the whole time of being lit. Uh, and so, yeah, we just left and, and we're really happy about that. Yeah. Whenever I go back, it's just, yeah, it's an assault. <laughs> you know, yeah. if you haven't been there in a while. Where do you where do you live permanently when you're not visiting your mom? I live in my mother's basement. I live in my mother's garage. That's, <laughs> that's kind of where <laughs> Truth be told, I just moved into her garage. But um <laughs> I live in Los Angeles. I live in a sort of on the border with Pasadena. It's called So are you familiar with LA at all? Just a little bit. LA is a is a strange place to visit. It also it has all kinds of phenomena that I'm not really accustomed to. It's obviously beautiful being near the water and, and I love the coast, but but LA itself has a whole different. And I'm not in, at all in the entertainment industry, so for me, it's just a bit of an out of body experience being there. But there's a lot more to LA, obviously, than I know. I just I've experienced it so superficially only. There was one passage in your book where you described. I think it was Khalid was telling you about people, and he said, "Listen, these are sharks. You don't feel bad when they do right. bad things to you because they're just swimming around doing what they what they do." You right. Know? I thought, oh my god, that sounds so much like some people I've met in Los Angeles, you know, if you ever wanted to, uh, you know, negotiate your, your television or film deal for your book, you know, I think you'd, I think you'd be pretty good at it. <laughs> it was, it was really strange because we optioned, we optioned the film rights and, and those discussions and negotiations with the, with bidders were really strange actually. And it was different dynamics, whether you're dealing with producers or, uh, you know, and, and then among producers, professionals versus sons of really wealthy tech entrepreneurs who like to run their own production company, just this really odd dynamics. But yeah, maybe it's, uh, I don't know, maybe I was better prepared for it. It was, it's, it was a, a very, very interesting experience, I will say. I look forward to the creative part of the process. Let's put it that way. Oh, are you developing it? Are you putting it into something? Yeah, yeah there's a, a group of producers and writers who are working now. Yeah, I optioned the film, right? So they're working on a pilot ideas to make it a one season of a multi-season series and mm -hmm. to make the book one of those seasons. So I think it's great. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, the, the, the creative part is a lot of fun, definitely is. And it's extremely different writing for TV or film versus writing a book. And I, hadn't, I knew nothing about that. So it's, I might have a really steep learning curve and that's fun. 
Yeah, this might be a little bit more sensitive topic, but um, I did want to ask you just because of your experience. I was really into the show Fauda for a few seasons, and I watched the film. I was just drawn into it so much, but then by the third season, I started feeling a little. I don't. I don't know how to explain it. I, it was. Um, I thought, wait a minute, is this is this telling me who to root for? You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, and I know they brought some other – they brought a different point of view in for the third season, but I just wanted to know what your perception of, of that show was. I thought it was fantastic and what was happening, but I thought this might be a little bit too close to what's actually happening. Sometimes fiction is better off um, being a little bit more metaphoric, but I just wanted to know what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, I mean, for me, that that really hits home. I know a lot of those units. We, we did things together with those undercover units, um, you know, in the Gaza Strip, in the West Bank. And so – I think it, it was well done. It's really fast paced, well written, well acted. All that I think is true. Um, I thought it it glorified one aspect of this in a, where there's really not a lot to glorify. And I'm friends with I have quite a few friends who are in those units or were in those units, and and um, they're their own form of special force essentially. And and there's nothing really about that that they perceived that way. You know, there's it it it, it felt so dirty and messy. Uh, and I think that gets lost. I think Fauda errs a little bit into the direction of the sort of Superman going behind enemy lines. And I think I was uncomfortable. I actually watched two or three episodes and I stopped. I really didn't enjoy it personally. I just thought, and it's not to say that it's not well acted and all that, but I I did not enjoy. That and I also feel that especially movies about Middle East and Israel and Palestine, I'm so exhausted by that, by the whole sort of tribal depiction. Depending on who you are, and there's good and there's bad, and just tell me who you are, where you were born, what your political affiliation is, your religion, and I can just tell you exactly how you're going to feel about the Middle East. And I, I'm really exhausted by that. This is such an unnuanced kind of approach to, to the Palestinian people. My, my life's been really different for for the last almost 30 years i you know i taught in arabic in universities in in east jerusalem and in al-quds university and bilzeit university i've established relationships no different than mine in israel and that and if for those who think that makes me a self-hating jew then they can kick rocks i don't really care so um i i just got really tired by by just belonging to one camp and I can recommend, by the way, if you haven't listened to this already, there's an amazing podcast by a guy called Daryl Cooper uh, called The Martyr Made Podcast. And uh, right. it, it's a few years old. His first episodes were on the Israel-Palestine conflict, especially the origins of Zionism and the early settlers and the Palestinian population there. And it is it's probably the most intelligent thing I've listened to on the region it's it's irrespective of exactly how i feel about it so my thinking is much more aligned with that and even though my background i was an israeli army in combat my dad obviously in the, in the independence generation that very much put all his chips in, in the middle of the table from one table only obviously i get that um but i think in 2021 to to just glorify those kinds of operations um I thought was exhausting. And I, I know some of the uh, people behind Fauda who claimed that they, they wanted to be even handed about. It. I just think they weren't. I, I really don't enjoy that. I don't enjoy also the Middle East being carved up that way. Just like I don't like to talk about Syria in sectarian terms or even Iran and, and Iraq in sectarian terms. There's just so much more nuance. Just like you and I talked about Afghanistan. It's just, it's just a little bit more complicated than that. And to just say, well, the Taliban are cavemen. Look at how they, you know, treat women. And therefore, you know, that's, it's such a silly way to go about that stuff. I'm really 
exhausted by those kinds of discussions. So for me, Fauda is not time. I don't want to spend my time watching something. Yeah, it's interesting about. I mean, you had one character who said that Americans. I think it was UB, or he was saying that American exceptionalism is based on the fact that we were not tribal. I was thinking, um, I, I kind of beg to differ a little, a little bit. Yeah, you know? it, it's funny how different the U.S. is. Right, how our perception of the U.S. has changed. I mean, this is 2014. Right. And as I'm editing the book and, and thinking about it, I'm thinking, wow, you know, the world has changed. We're a whole lot more tribal than we perhaps thought. But, but you know, in part, that's probably my ignorance about the U.S. I'm reading a book right now. It's not a new book called Empire of the Summer Moon about the Comanches and, and the Parker family, Cynthia Ann Parker. And it was taken in, in the 1840s, I think, um, and grew up as Comanche and, and that whole uh, settlement of Texas post Alamo and, and, and sort of the, the philosophy about, and even the, the, among the settlers, this dislike for their own government, right. And not feeling in any way bound by the, the Texas government's agreements with the native American groups there. I mean, there's so much about it. I don't know where you feel that the tribal thinking is so deeply ingrained way beyond what we're now talking about with, you know, the, vestiges of slavery and original sin. It goes, it's so much more nuanced than that, that, you know, the fact that we didn't recognize our own tribal structures and focus much more on multicultural uh, society is probably due to my ignorance. But I also believe both things can be true, which is we can be an extremely tribal society, also for political reasons, also perhaps also because the civil war still has its impact today in terms of the compromise necessary to emerge as a union, and uh, which is all Lincoln really cared about, is just not losing that. Uh, and and yet at the same time, we can be a country of immigrants and, and you know, f- composed of people from all over the world and all kinds of religions and pigmentation and so on. So I think both things can be true. It's not the binary choice. It doesn't make us untribal just because we're multicultural. But I think that uh, certainly the degree in the U.S. compared to Lebanon, people don't only just put you in one category, despite all the polemics going on right now. It's a little bit, you know, there are other aspects to you. Uh, versus in Lebanon, it's really clear which group you belong to. It's going to determine everything. I mean, with Lebanon, there's so, I mean, it's so, there's so many players there, so many different organizations, tribes, communities. I mean, I don't want to get into Lebanon too much, but that just seems like a, so confusing that it almost seems like they would have to have some sort of, you know, democratic way of solving problems. But Mark, you know, the part of, I mean, Lebanon, like Syria, you can't really understand its problems if you don't understand the history of the problem. So even, and I, I know a lot has been written about the Sykes-Pico line and the way the British and the French carved up the region, all that, and that, that's all true. But one of the things that you're still seeing in the Middle East was something that the colonial powers used brilliantly, uh, the British better than anyone else, but even the French, which is that when they would go into a particular area, and, and by the way, early Zionists, as much as they, those uh, Eastern European Jews had suffered from awful pogroms for centuries in Eastern Europe, they still had a white European colonial mentality in terms of how they saw indigenous population in, pa- in Palestine. Mm. Uh, and so, again, multiple, you can be a victim in one context and a, and a perpetrator from that perspective in another one. It's just more nuanced, not binary. Um, and so what, one thing that you're seeing in Lebanon and in Syria very much is the, the British and the French, the first thing they did when they would enter a territory is they would look for the minority group and they would put the minority group in power. Because what happened then is that the minority group could never rule without the colonial power support. They would always be unpopular and they knew that the moment 
they were no longer in power, they'd just get massacred, <sighs> right? And Israel, by the way, has done the same thing. So when we talk about how come Israel, how come you have Hamas in the Gaza Strip? Why would Israel allow for that to happen? Well, you have to understand Hamas was a minority against Fatah, against Arafat's group. So Hamas was very, very useful, right, as a tool initially until you get, you know, Frankenstein's monster. And then at some point you don't control this thing anymore. And but Syria and Lebanon are perfect examples where the tiny minority you put in power never would withstand any kind of popular democratic vote. And they would just get butchered if they were in power long enough because they had committed atrocities. So they needed the colonial powers to stay with them as long as possible. The problem is when colonial rule ends, you have the whole thing collapsing. Right. And you have sometimes decades of hatred and animosity and pain and wounds and scars that people are not just going to willing to forgive. They're not going to say, okay, let's do a truth and reconciliation committee like commission like Mandela did in South Africa. Let's all hold hands in Kumbaya. No, we're talking about, you know, atrocities, children just tortured to death for decades and decades. People are not willing to just move on. But it's a result of that, which is that you, colonial powers did in fact, so much more than where the borders are. And I know lots has been written that Iraq shouldn't exist as that kind of a country. It should be three countries and all that stuff. Sykes-Pico. More than anything, it's this, element of a minority rule under colonial power that when the colonial powers moved back you created the you created the dna of the current problems that you have and that's true throughout and by the way that's even true for monarchies look at the jordanian monarchy look at the saudi monarchy they couldn't rule unless the the house of saud it was just one tribe they had no prayer until they got together with the wahhabis but you understand supported obviously by the british and later by the u.s so you see this fault line. So when we talk about, you know, the importance of, of developing democracy there and democratic, the same kind of talk you hear and you heard in Afghanistan for 20 years, you can't start there. You first will have to undo these, either these problems or you have to work with these scars that you have there and come up with different structures. For example, rotational governments with parliaments that are more like council of elders representing tribes with judicial systems within tribes. So you have to start to think, and this is what our foundations do, start to think a little bit differently or else it's just a zero-sum game. You have one group in power and everyone else out of power, whether it's a 20% of the population, 40% doesn't really matter. Uh, and so this is what I mean when we talk about Lebanon or Afghanistan or Syria, just to talk of it in terms of, well, was the pullback, you know, what, what do you think of what happened at the airport, anything like that? It's tragic. Every death is tragic. And obviously no one's happy with the situation in Afghanistan, but there are reasons for that that even predate the last 20 years. And so either we not only talk about that, but suddenly start to adjust our policy to take that into account, uh, or we really shouldn't be in those countries, We really sh in terms of non-military, in other words, trying to rebuild countries. If we really suck at it so bad because we can't take that into account, then we really shouldn't be in that business. I mean, if you if you need brain surgery, you're just not going to go to someone who really sucks at brain surgery, right? So, I mean, it's, it's yeah. pretty plain. That's, you know, I haven't really thought about that dynamic. You know, the colonial minority, almost like fear security-based alliance, right? And I imagine and that is also... Alawi rule, Alawi rule in Syria. I mean, it's a tiny little marginal group from... The, and by the way, dirt poor. Hafiz al-Assad was dirt poor. His mother had to go work for a Sunni family in Damascus as sort of semi sex slave, semi-domestic worker. And so that's obviously something you never forgave Sunni population for. So I, th there are reasons for this DNA. Same thing with Lebanon, trying to sort of play all the groups, the Sunnis and the Shias and, uh, and the Shias, which were dirt poor in South Beirut until Hezbollah gave them political power. The, the Christian 
Falange groups that committed the atrocities in Sablan Shatila under Samir Jaja and those guys and the Jamayel family. How do you end up with these kinds of groups having any power? This is not a democratic kind of structure whatsoever, but you have to start rethinking it in a way that a country can be governed. Lebanon's a failed state. Uh, Syria is obviously a failed state. It's destroyed. But Lebanon is a failed state economically, but also politically. It doesn't have political structures anymore that can deliver government service, right? Governance to its people. It right. just doesn't have it. That's, that's not a, the polemic statement. That's just a statement of fact. So how does corruption weigh in with that? I mean, I, I guess the colonials will turn a blind eye to the minority if they're, if they're corrupt as long as they do doing what, what they want. I mean, there's a lot of different roots of corruption, but it seems like that would be one. I think we, you know, we tend to, we tend to look at these things so moralizingly when we have our own roots of corruptions. I wrote a few episodes in, in my last book, Nothing But a Circus, about you know, someone in the State Department suggesting a major contribution to the Clinton Foundation when she was Secretary of State. How is that not corrupt? You know, oh, right. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, so, so I'm not we shouldn't be really walking around pointing hands. I'll, I'll tell you an anecdote that my dad told me when I was a kid. And then I heard it again from a, a, a Kenyan woman at the United Nations. Same anecdote, which is that in the 1950s, pre-independence, a, an African, East African student goes to Oxford and becomes best friends with the Southeast Asian students. The, the joke is based on the fact, on the real fact, that at independence, Uganda and Singapore had about the same GDP, right? And obviously the country's evolved into very different directions since then. So that's the background. So the joke goes, they become best friends. So then they go back to their countries, their countries gain independence, they both become finance ministers. And a few years afterwards, the Uganda, or this East, East African, visits his buddy in Southeast Asia, looks out the streets, sees roads, hospitals, schools, supermarkets, everything, just amazed. He says, man, this is just unbelievable. How do you guys do this? So his colleague says, it really wasn't that hard. Let's say I needed a new road. I put out a tender. The Ministry of Finance put out a tender. Some company got the bid. I got 10%, and the thing got built, and it was beautiful. So the guy said, man, that's great. I'm going to keep that in mind. A few years later, his Southeast Asian friend visits him in his East African capital. And he looks out, nothing but dirt roads, open sewage, dirt roads, just a mess. And he looks around and says, dude, we talked about this. What happened? <laughs> and the guy says, I don't know. I, I listened to you. I did what you did. We needed a new road. I put out a tender. I took 100% from myself and nothing happened. <laughs> Right. So to me, to me, yeah. corruption is, is kind of a word that we always put in moralistic terms. I think that there's there's a reality of corruption. We can legislate until we're blue in the face. It's a natural thing. If you don't pay a traffic cop a living wage, a traffic cop's going to take a bribe for not giving you a ticket. That's just you have to change that at a completely. You're not going to put the traffic cop into anti-corruption training. You've got to solve that problem elsewhere. Right. So there's going to be in every country, some degree of corruption, whether, you know, spoiler alert, it's in Switzerland and Norway, just like it's in South Sudan, just different type of form. The key question is, do I have enough of a functioning state, enough living wages for policemen, for example, right, that I can keep that in a manageable bandwidth? In fact, perhaps even in a bandwidth that stimulates an economy. And I'm not, this is not a moral statement. It's just, again, one that works because I'm, I have to assume some corruption is going to agree. It's kind of like a pandemic discussion. This this is going to stay around. How do we deal with it in a way that we can function when it becomes endemic, right? Are we going to adjust mm -hmm. our behavior or are we going to become a Darwinian species that's extinct, right? So do we adjust to that? So to me, elements of corruption, especially you're giving people who may not have had power, a lot of power in whatever form, whether it's in government and police and military, corruption is going to be there. This is not, you can't just tell them it's a bad thing to do. We've had the 10 commandments around for a long time. That doesn't mean they don't get violated every day. 
Some people violate all of them all the time. So it's not about legislating it. It's, it's really about creating an institutional framework in a country that limits it to a, to a range that is manageable. And, uh, and, and to me, that's, that's really the issue. So yeah, you look at Afghanistan, you look at a failed state. Obviously, you can put trillions into it. Absolutely huge amounts of those funds are just going to get embezzled, right? So you're literally giving money in cash to the ruling class there perpetuating the idea of revolutions and counter-revolutions because revolutions always devour their own children, right? So you're not really doing anything because what you've done is you've not done is built types of institutions that can actually provide a service to the citizens under whatever political system, monarchies, rotation systems, republics, who cares for now, as long as the service is being provided, as long as you do have schools and you have, you have, courts and you have, you know, sanitation and hospitals, if you have that, you start to limit the range of corruption and excess uh, and you can have a manageable structure. So that's one of those things that you should always learn in politics, which is that the perfect is the enemy of the good. And you really should strive for the good. And that's what we should have done in Afghanistan rather than say that, you know, we're going to have some kind of a brand spankling new parliament under whatever model. That's just silly. Yeah, this has been really interesting. I thought we we're—I thought it was just going to be talking about, uh, you know, kidnapping and so forth. But this has been a fascinating geopolitical, cultural discussion here. It's funny. I remember—I just remember want to mention one thing. I was in Kenya a few years ago. And I went to the market, and I, I learned pretty quickly there that if you want to buy something, that you have to tell them what you want, and uh, and then you literally have to how much you're willing to pay. You bargain back and forth, but at a certain point, you have to turn around and walk away, right? Right. And like, and they then they kind of call you back but it's a fine line because you also and you learn this in in any market it can be in kenya it can be in in uh, dubai it doesn't really matter but you have to also there's a fine line where you can't be insulting either right so what what it is that you want and you're willing to pay can't be insultingly low or become it can become really acrimonious so figuring out that nuance where you're obviously not a sucker you're overpaying where you let the other person know that you know that he knows that you know that he knows kind of thing yeah and then willing to say, hey, man, I'm happy to take my ball and go home, right? And then that's when what really happens is that's when the real negotiation starts. So it's kind of like you have to do the foreplay. You have to make sure that everyone knows that you're hot and then be done with the foreplay and say, and then the way you say, OK, I'm done with foreplay is, OK, see you later. And that's when that's when people sit down and say, OK, what's the real price? Uh, so it's it's kind of a it's, you know, it's like a mating ritual, essentially. Yeah. Anyway, this is really great talking to you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for being on the live drop. My pleasure. It was really fun talking to you. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that was uh, that was one of those episodes where I'm just really grateful to have a podcast as an excuse to have someone like Daniel Levin come on and uh, just talk to me, get to know him a little bit and teach me a lot about the world that I wasn't really aware of. Anyway, his book, Proof of Life, is out now. You should check it out. And uh, you can find out more about Daniel in the show notes, but his website is daniellevinauthor.com. He has some other books, and he also works for the Liechtenstein Foundation for State Governance. The links of that are in the show notes. If you're enjoying the show, I've got a one-time PayPal. You can pitch in if you want. And on Patreon, I'm going to have some exclusive content, like transcripts for each one of the episodes. So if you can put in a little bit of money, that'd be great. But if you can't, no worries. Keep listening. Keep listening.